And let me start by complimenting my colleague, Minister Nzimande, for initiating this ministerial engagement with the leadership of all the universities. It's timely, it's important for us, and it provides a good basis for a dialogue between policymakers today and the policymakers uh, of the future. I've been asked today to uh, speak on issues around the new growth path. And it's fitting that we do so today at the University of Johannesburg. And I'd like to acknowledge the Deputy Vice-Chancellor of the University. It's a university with whom we have had very strong relations as government and one that we see at the forefront of our efforts to transform the economy and change our society. The traditions we come from, the traditions on which this republic is founded, is a tradition of citizen activism. It's of students who have shaped our world in very deep and very profound ways. It is the tradition of the student movement in the 1950s that was part of the ANC, the Youth League, uh, Comrade Madiba, his history is very well recorded. It's the history of students in 1976. It's the history of students throughout the period up to 1994 when we made the transition to our democracy. And so today when I talk to you about the economy, I talk in the spirit of that activism, of recognizing that you represent a very important layer in society. You represent young people who are in increasing numbers entering this economy. You have the right, the responsibility, the duty to help shape that economy. In 1994, the young person born in that year will today typically be a young person at university. And so the generation of people who are leaving universities this year and next year are the generation of new job seekers. And in sharing with you some reflections on the economic context of entering that labor market, I'd like to start the journey in 1994. We inherited an economy that was broken, a society that was divided, and a reality that excluded most South Africans. In that context, we approached as the ruling party but then a liberation movement that had no experience in government, we approached our people with a program of transformation. The program was called the Reconstruction and Development Program. And it sought to make a decisive break with the realities of apartheid. It did so in the economy. It did so in education, in healthcare, across the wide front of policy. And so to fast forward to 2009, in that year, the last year when we had a general election, the party that I represent approached the South African people and put a manifesto to them. That manifesto called for decent work to be placed at the core of all government policies. It spoke about the need to bring many young people into employment and to ensure that that employment is of a quality that would offer South Africans a dignified life. So what has been our experience since then and how does this link up with this idea, this document that I've been asked to speak about, which is the new growth path of government.
When we started as the new administration in May 2009, we took the electoral promises that were made and which were endorsed by close to two-thirds of the South African voting public. And we worked on crafting this into a public program, into a program of governance. But as we did that, we were faced with the deepest and the longest economic crisis that the world has seen since the 1930s since the Great Depression. As we stepped into uh, government, the, the, uh, the economy officially went into recession. A recession is when the economy shrinks for three consecutive quarters and it's smaller than it, what it was previously. So the economy went technically into recession a recession, the first recession of the democratic era, and a recession caused by developments outside of South Africa, namely the global economic crisis. As we looked at the offer that uh, had come through the discussions in government, we recognized that not only must we deal with this deep, deep economic crisis globally, but our own growth path, the way in which our economy had developed, could not bring about the number of jobs that we needed. In our analysis of the old growth path, we identified key challenges. And I'd like to share a few of those with you briefly. The first challenge we faced is that we had an economy that essentially sold raw materials, minerals, to the rest of the world and imported finished goods. So we would take South African iron ore and sell it to China and we would import fridges from China. We would take wool grown on South African sheep and sell it, say, to India, and we would import woolen jackets from India. And the result of that was that we were effectively exporting jobs. Faced with an enormous crisis of unemployment, we were not playing to our natural advantage to use the mineral wealth of the nation to foster industrialization, to have factories that transform that wool, that iron ore, that gold, that platinum into products that people wanted to buy. Where we grew, it was based on consumption, on people buying more things. But that consumption was financed by ever-rising debt. So we were not expanding our productive capacity to keep up or be better than our consumption. Consumption was growing faster than our ability to grow the economy itself. And like a, a person with an individual budget, it can only spell trouble in the long run. Third, our levels of investment, what we were putting away for tomorrow to grow the economy, whether it's investment in people through skills or investment in infrastructure, was low, low by the standards of what was needed, and it had dropped further in 2008 with the global economic crisis. Savings levels were low, domestic savings, what we as a nation was putting aside from all of the money we were earning to be able to finance our future expansion. So what did we do? We imported savings from elsewhere in the world. In other words, we borrowed money from other countries to finance our consumption. And that made us vulnerable when you borrow money, whether it's from a bank or a money lender or from uh, an investor in another country. 
there are risks with their borrowing and our economy faced those risks. One of the big risks was we relied on short-term capital inflows. If people wanted to invest, they would buy South African bonds. It's paper that our treasury issues. And if they got a better deal in Thailand tomorrow, they would sell our bonds and buy Thai bonds. And so it was very unstable. You were not locked into a long-term, steady, predictable flow of money. Now imagine as a student trying to manage your budget, faced with the problems that I've described for the nation. We had a high energy intensity to our growth, so it means every time we produce goods in South Africa, we use more energy than most other countries do. And that energy was very often coal-based. And so the byproduct of that was damage to the environment. We had major bottlenecks that we had inherited from centuries of exclusion of black South Africans from decision making. Bottlenecks in logistics. You know, we have we are a very unusual country in that most countries' economic activities would be near to a river or near to an, uh, an ocean. Our economic activity today where you sit here is based on the accident of where gold was discovered. So we've had to build a transport and inf infrastructure network to connect our economic activity with the rest of the world. And we had bottlenecks there. We had bottlenecks in energy. We underinvested in building new power plants. In water, we were using the dams that were built for many decades in the past and not adding to the stock of new dams. And above all, we had bottlenecks of skills, investment in our most important resource, which is uh, our people. We had succeeded in expanding access to education, but we had not improved the quality of education to the level required in a modern and dynamic economy. And finally, we had a highly concentrated economy with monopolies where one company dominates a market, or cartels, that's when two or three companies sit quietly in a room uh, and secretly decide how to divide work uh, and uh, markets out between themselves. And the effect of the monopolies and the cartels was to raise costs, to increase inefficiency, and to keep new entrants out of the market. So that's what we inherited. So we've got a promise to our people, decent work. We have a reality, a uh, quite complex reality with a global economic recession and these features of our old growth path. But the global context was changing in more ways than only a recession. In this period as uh, the fourth administration came into power after the 1994 change. The world was undergoing major changes too. China, India, Brazil, Russia were becoming more important players in the global economy. The United States and Europe found that their sources of growth were slowing down. Europe went into a recession from which it's still not fully emerged, and American growth slowed down very dramatically. In contrast, China's growth was the fastest and most sustained way in which any country, any major country, had transformed itself in the 20th century. But the result of all of this was also leading to other changes a scramble for Africa's resources. Suddenly new countries were competing with the old France and uh, the UK and the United States for access to Africa's resources. And everybody was beating a path to our continent. The effect of this fast growth and bringing many more people into the modern economy was also damaging to the environment.
more than a century of industrialization was changing the long-term future of humanity by causing serious and material damage to the environment, particularly one that would cause big and unpredictable changes to our climates. And not climates as in will it be sunny today or will it rain, but climates as in whether a big part of the African continent would still be able to grow food, whether a city like Etequini or Cape Town would still be around where the rising sea levels would begin to invade areas of that city. So big changes. Technology was changing our world, both ICT, that your generation has been so adept at, uh, at using, the internet, uh, social media, but also other changes to technology. The development of nanotechnology with things very tiny, uh, uh, new technologies were emerging, and other changes that was reshaping our world. So, so this was the challenge we faced in 2009. Very, very big changes in our world and huge constraints in our country. So we set ourselves the goal as a government to recover from the recession, to do so in a way that began to shift away from this platforms of old growth that I've sketched. One that you, you import finished goods, you borrow money all the time to, to, to consume things, you, you export your raw materials, you kept your savings rates low, you're underinvested. That growth path we said, we've got to make a dramatic break with it. But as we, we did so, we also had to do it in the context, we had to make these changes, recover from the recession, in a living organism. We couldn't put the economy in a laboratory and slow everything down and then begin to tinker and change. You had to do it whilst people were producing, while they were fighting over wages or profits, while different interests were playing itself out in the economy. It's like redesigning a plane in flight. Not a plane that's landed at the airport that you can take apart, but whilst you're in the air, you've got to say, hang on, our engines are not the right engines. Let's build new engines and then slowly wean ourselves off the old engines. And we had to do so in other contexts, weak state capacity. A state that had not built up enough capacity to be able to effectively and quickly implement. A culture that has begun to uh, uh, settle in the country of rapid accumulation of wealth. By fair means or foul. A get-rich-quick culture. And let's be frank also, a negative narrative in the public discourse, in the public discussion about South Africa, its future, its economy, and so on. So those were some of the, uh, the, the background and challenges that we had to face and that I wanted to share with you before introducing what it is that we felt represented the new direction that we needed to take. So in 2009, we began the work that led eventually to a document that was adopted in government called the New Growth Path. Following that, we had one element of the New Growth Path, and I'll talk to you about it in a moment, that is an industrial policy action plan to bring industrialization to the economy. We set up a national infrastructure plan. Some of it will affect the universities and FET colleges in quite significant ways. We negotiated a series of accords with trade unions, with business organizations, with youth movements, with community organizations, and we've made copies of two of those accords available to you, namely the Youth Employment Accord and the National Skills Accord. What you don't have in front of you, but if you are interested, we can send to you, is the Green Economy Accord the Local Procurement Accord, the Basic Education Accord, and of course the New Growth Path itself.
Last year, we took much of the learnings from all these accords and the policy work and the National Planning Commission brought it together in the National Development Plan that Minister Manuel will be speaking to you about tonight, which sets a country vision, the kind of South Africa we want to be by 2030. So what is it that represents the new direction of economic policy? What is this new growth path that uh, I spoke of? Well, it starts off by putting jobs at the center of economic policy. Now you may say, but isn't that quite natural? Isn't that what every government does? And the answer is no. Most governments don't have an employment goal as their central economic goal. Typically, governments measure their success and they set their targets by how much more goods and services will be produced. In other words, what is the growth rate of the GDP? And they assume that if you can get high growth, with it will come increasing numbers of jobs. What our work showed in South Africa and in many other countries is that there's not always a strong relationship between growth and jobs. You do need growth, but you need growth that is inclusive, that helps to create more jobs for people, that is sustainable both in time but also for the environment, growth that reduces inequalities and helps a population to lift itself out of poverty. And let me illustrate it by way of what may well be two different kind of examples. If the number of casinos in an economy was to rise dramatically, and the number of people who go uh, playing the lotto increase, that will be reflected in a rising GDP. So your growth rate would have gone up. But through the activity, you may have some entertainment value out of it, but through the activity of playing the lotto or going to the casino, you create no new wealth in the economy. So your economy is no better off. So the, the key of economic policy is to ensure that you increasingly shift more and more of your resources to where you can expand your productive sectors of your economy. And so if you increase factory manufacturing and people have jobs and how they spend their money, whether it is in this or that service is left to them, but you have something that creates real value. So our, our task was to put a new goal to economic policy. And we said that goal is 5 million new jobs by 2020. We said that we can create those jobs through what we call jobs drivers. Infrastructure, infrastructure is everything. It's your university buildings, it's your, the water in your tap, it's the electricity I use now for this uh, microphone, it's the um, transport you'll use to go back uh, at the end of uh, uh, the, the uh, meeting to your residence or uh, back home. That's your, your infrastructure. So we said we've got to to set up an infrastructure plan that tackles the legacy of our past. Past infrastructure was created on the basis that 20% of South Africans are the objective of economic uh, activity and 80% must provide uh, various forms of labor. If you have a more equitable society, you need an infrastructure plan that does that. Example. Instead of dumping the rural poor in a tiny village with no resources, an infrastructure plan in a democracy is about roads to that village, water in that village, the ability of the rural poor to take the products that they produce and sell it on urban markets. So that's an example. It means taking colleges and not clustering them only in the um, seven or eight metropolitan areas but shifting them so that you have equitable access across the country. Those are examples of what is an equitable infrastructure plan. Secondly, we said we needed to rebuild 
the productive sectors of the economy, manufacturing, mining, but also the way in which we use our mining products locally, we call it beneficiation, the processing of mining products. And above all, agriculture and agro-processing. We had a jobs driver for the green economy and the knowledge-based sectors. We have a jobs driver in the new growth path for tourism, for the creative sectors such as music and uh, art and certain high-level business services. And we have a jobs driver for the social economy. That's cooperatives, uh, not-for-profit institutions, and other uh, parts of the economy that is vibrant, uh, but different to your ordinary profit-driven economy. We also identified the African continent as a jobs driver. We said that Africa is able to contribute to South Africa's well-being, provided we assisted in ensuring that Africa itself grows. I went to Davos a few years ago, uh, uh, Minister Nzimanden, with these business people all sitting there, and they were looking, they were talking about growth elsewhere in the world, and we asked them if they knew anything about African growth. And it was surprising how little was known about the continent then. It's begun to change now. Today, if you look at the projections of growth over the next five years, produced by the IMF, seven of the ten fastest growing economies in the world will be African economies. But that growth is still very much selling minerals and agricultural products to the rest of the world. So as long as China is growing fast, China needs African minerals. As long as Europe has a big market, Europe requires uh, African agriculture. We saw that Africa needed to trade more with itself. Let me give you a statistic. If you look at interregional trade, the, the way in which Asians trade with each other, 45% of all the goods made in Asia is sold to other Asians. In uh, Europe, it's 71%. In Africa, it's 12%. It's 12% because we sell to the rest of the world. We don't sell to each other. And we don't sell to each other not because we don't want to, but how can you sell if I make copper, if I uh, make copper and you make platinum? There's no basis for a trade. We are not developing balanced economies where you can trade with each other. So the new growth path was about changing all of this. We set up a number of policy drivers they included skills development, and in skills development, it's the work that uh, my colleague has uh, pioneered and led in government, to shift our education focus much more to vocational training, to improve the connection between what is taught uh, at universities and FET colleges and what is needed in the economy, to break with the, uh, the extraordinary focus which is an Anglo-Saxon thing with the humanities uh, where the highest aspiration is to become uh, a lawyer or a doctor and to recognize the balanced economy requires more engineers, more project managers, more specialists in different fields and begin to, to change that. But not only universities, that FET colleges are vital and I'm pleased to, to, to recognize that there are some representatives of FET colleges here today. Where artisans, you know, in Germany, an artisan is a highly respected member of society. If you're young, if you're energetic, if you're creative, if you've got a can-do attitude, chances are you would go and be an artisan as much as you may become a graduate at the university. In our system, an artisan is for someone who can't make it to the university. So we have devalued these vital skills that an economy needs in the pursuit of trying to reproduce ourselves as a mini example of, say, the UK economy. The fast-growing economies of the world have a strong engineering base, they have a strong artisanal base. They value their bricklayers, their plumbers, their carpenters. But they take through the, uh, the concept an artisan is not only your tradespeople, 
than any systematic program of, of, of training that is not university-based. So it's training, it's competition policies, it's trade policies, it's industrial policies, a range of these that are in the new growth path as what we call policy drivers. We also have what we call institution drivers. Where must we make changes in the state? I'll give an example, the Industrial Development Corporation, uh, which uh, is an old body that uh, was formed in the 1940s. Its task in the past has been to drive industrialization in the country. In the last 10, 15 years, it slowed down its rate of investment. So it was about dusting off the IDC, giving it a fresh mandate, letting it go out there aggressively, co-funding with the private sector, and lifting the rate of investment in the economy. We have resource drivers, which is where we can call uh, on, uh, on uh, resources to implement the new growth path. And, uh, and above all, we called for policy integration. We said, let's sit down with COSATU uh, and the other trade union federations. Let's sit down with the business organizations and develop a package of social commitments in which all of the key social partners put something on the table and we build a broad consensus about how to make this economy grow, how to create more jobs, how to deal with the challenges of our people. So where are we now at the end of uh, this process of, uh, of, of the new growth path? Where, where have we come to? I want to share a few outcomes with you. You recall I said that in 2009 we inherited a world that was rapidly changing. China and India and others were becoming more prominent. Well, South Africa placed itself at the center of those developments. Uh, in 2011, we became a member of BRICS, a grouping of countries that's made up of Brazil, Russia, India, and China, and now South Africa. And we became, in that, part of the fastest growing part of the global economy. And we began to reorient our economic relations from north to south, to countries where there's a lot more similarities about our developmental challenges. We were benchmarking ourselves now with countries that had challenges of poverty, of inequality, of unemployment, learning from them, seeing opportunity in their markets, uh, finding opportunity for their investments here. We hosted the first summit on the African uh, continent. President Zuma invited the heads of state of the other four BRICS countries, and they came to South Africa in, at the end of March and early April. And uh, uh, that summit was held under the theme African Partnership for Industrialization. So China and India and others accepted working with South Africa and the continent must be about unlocking our industrialization opportunities. Second, on jobs. What have we done? What needs to be done? Since the adoption of the new growth path, we've created 647,000 new jobs in the economy. Today, there are 13.6 million employed South Africans. Last year alone, in the 12 months ending March this year, 200,000 new jobs were created. We celebrate this, but, and there's a huge qualifier, the rate of job creation will need to be increased and sustained over a long period to be able to deal with the large numbers of unemployed young people and to deal with the fact that hundreds of thousands of young people enter the labor market every year. So we can't only deal with the past unemployed. We've got to grow jobs in sufficient numbers to do a noticeable difference to our levels of unemployment. Our GDP recovered from the 2009 recession. And that is no small feat, because right now there are still 30 countries whose GDP, that's the, the measure of your total uh, wealth that you, you create in any given year, their GDP is still lower than it was in 2008. 
Would it surprise you if I told you that the United Kingdom's economy today is smaller than it was in 2008? So to Holland, Denmark, Italy, Spain, Portugal, Ireland, many other countries. South Africa's economy is 11% bigger today than it was at the low point of the recession. The next area though is the qualifier. So GDP has grown. We're better off in our growth rate than many of the other countries, but we've not shifted enough of our economy to the productive sectors. So it's still work in progress to expand manufacturing and mining and agriculture. Incidentally, in agriculture, we've had the biggest rise in jobs in agriculture in the last 12 months than we've seen in the last few decades. The next area I want to, uh, to talk about is the infrastructure plan. We sat down and we, we developed a, a very ambitious 30-year plan for infrastructure. Just the first uh, uh, number of years of this infrastructure plan will cost us 4 trillion rand. It's an enormous uh, mobilization of resources to build power stations. You will see in the newspapers the challenges, the difficulties with some of our build programs. But right now we are building two of the world's largest coal-fired power stations. Problems and all. We're embarking on one of the most ambitious green energy programs. Just what we will produce from sun and wind energy in the next uh, four years is more than the total electricity that Nigeria produced with all of its sources. So just green energy alone is going to be a massive part of our work. There's 180,000 people employed in the programs that the state has in place. We tabled together with Minister Nzimande a skills plan at a structure called the Human Resource Council, the HRD Council, uh, that the Deputy President, Khalima uh, Mutlante, chairs, that sets out how we can produce, how many engineers we need, project managers, uh, artisans, and we break it down into all of the components. We'd love to share that with you, and if there's an opportunity uh, to do so, for the student leadership to see where our work is, uh, we can do so. In that infrastructure plan, we announced the building of two new universities in Mpumalanga and in the Northern Cape. We have a number of new FET colleges that will be built. We track now every quarter how much every university is spending, including UJ, on capital spending. Are they building student residences? Are they building, are they expanding the, the lecture rooms? Are they uh, uh, investing in the other parts, research laboratories and so on, that a university requires? We know we've got big challenges. My colleague tells me, and the work that he's commissioned shows, that student accommodation is one of the biggest challenges. There's a shortage of 200,000 beds, I am told. So the infrastructure plan is the beginning of tackling that. We've set an immediate goal of uh, getting between 10 and 20,000 beds built. That's, uh, student accommodation, and we're working now with the Department of Higher Education and Training to do that, and I'm sure Minister Nzimandia shared that with you. We're working to develop the concept of university precincts, an area in a major city where you have the university and research institutions and FET colleges, and you just cluster them together. We're trying to identify ways of strengthening the university towns. Alice, for example, is uh, university town, as is Grahamstown, uh, the economy is driven by what happens in the higher education sector. We're looking at uh, making South African universities the universities of choice on the continent. So many students from the African continent still see Harvard and the English uh, universities and increasingly Indian universities as the places that they would want to study post their basic degree and sometimes 
for their basic degree. And we see we've got the educational infrastructure and we can expand it to make it the hub of African learning, developing African solutions through higher education and training. And that brings me to Africa itself. President Zuma two years ago invited 25 other heads of state and government to Johannesburg. And he launched a free trade talks that would include these 26 countries. That in the next uh, two years we hope to have an agreement in place that will remove all the internal tariff barriers uh, between this, uh, or among these 26 countries. It will create a massive market of 600 million Africans. Right now there are 90,000 South African jobs that are dependent on what comes from uh, our trade with the rest of Africa. Key investments, we've attracted major new investments in the last few years. BMW had to make a decision, where does it build its new three series? It chose South Africa as one of only a few locations. Mercedes-Benz had to decide where will it build its new C-Class. We were one of four global uh, places it chose. Uh, Ford had to decide where does it make the Ranger Bucky that it will sell to 120 other countries. It chose South Africa. Now I give those examples to show what industrialization means in practice. When this administration came into office in 2009, every minibus taxi, every new minibus taxi was imported. We worked with Toyota to create an assembly plant in uh, Etequini. We worked with Beijing Auto Works to set up a plant in Springs here in uh, Gauteng. And today, in a very rapid period, 38% of all new taxis are assembled in South Africa. And I have examples. I have examples in bus manufacturing, in train manufacturing. We've just sold our first coaches and locomotives made in South Africa, we've sold to Mozambique. So it's, it's, re, it's rediscovering the roots of a dynamic, strong economy rooted in industrialization, rooted in the real economy. Let me move more rapidly now, uh, because of time, to the fact that we, we've also changed many other parts of the economy in competition law. We've taken on the cartels. You've seen in the media recently We've taken on the construction cartels, brought 21 companies uh, uh, into our investigation, uh, found massive evidence of fraud and um, corruption by private sector players against the public interest, and uh, we've levied already uh, penalties of 1.4 billion rand against those companies. They sat in rooms, divided the contracts out among themselves, they had this idea called a cover price. So a cover price works like this. The three companies sit in the room and we say, okay, we're all going to, uh, to, to tender, but we know my company is going to be the winning one. And I then set the cover price. So I may say the cover price is 200 million rand. It means the two of you must submit tenders above 200 million. So that government thinks it's a free market. Government thinks it's competition because you're getting three tenders, but actually it's being uh, managed and manipulated by the three parties. Now what do you get out of it? For the next contract, I'll give it to you. But don't worry, as they say in the TV advert, there's more. <laughs> they have something called a loser's fee. I, as the winning tenderer, will give you a payment for allowing me to win and for allowing yourself to lose. Now, this of course would be funny if it wasn't the money of the South African taxpayer, the South African citizen, that was improperly used by companies in the private sector. So we begin to tackle uh, uh, cartels in the construction sector, in the food sector. We had a, a massive settlement in the uh, price fixing of bread and of um, uh, chicken and flour products uh, a couple of years ago. Our tourism levels are up. We're now growing at double the global rate of, uh, of new tourists arriving. So these are some just quick snapshots to you of beginning the journey. And it's, it's really at the beginning of a journey of shifting 
towards a new growth path. As I said, re-engineering that plane in the air. One of the areas that we've covered is the Youth Employment Accord. It's the yellow booklet that you have in front of you. It's one that is based on acknowledging that if we are to be successful as an economy, we must bring young people in large numbers into employment. And to do that requires above all three things. It means better skills, it means exposure to the workplace, and it means more jobs. And the Youth Employment Accord sets out how we want to do that. It's a partnership in which we're now going company by company and we're getting the big companies to state what will they do. Inside of government, we've said what we'll do. We'll now create an internship for young people where every government department has to take on interns equal to 5% of its total employment so that people will have a first chance at exposure to work. But we've gone further to say that we must also carve out jobs for young people in permanent uh, employment, not just in the interns thing. So in future, in the infrastructure program for the new build that we have in mind, the big power stations and ports and roads and so on, 60% of all those jobs will be reserved for young people. And we've done the same now in the green economy, we've done it with business process services. Wherever the state has a major say, we've set a goal, a target for the employment of young people by contractors. And you'll see the figures are in the Youth Employment Accord. But we're not confining young people only to being employ employees. We've put up a fund. The IDC has put up 1 billion rand. And the Small Enterprise Finance Agency has put up 1.7 billion rand, which gives you 2.7 billion rand for youth entrepreneurship, for youth cooperatives, for small businesses uh, owned and run by young people to go out there and to make their mark in society. It's not charity from us. It's recognizing that young people have the energy and the dynamism that can power our economy. Look at the big parts of the global economy, your Facebooks, your Googles, and so on. They are startups of young people. And South African young people have the same capacity and energy and enterprise. It is when we fail them by not giving them that first opportunity with funding that we can't tap into the energy of young people. And so that's what the Youth Employment Accord is all about. Let me conclude. And in concluding, I'd like to say that we have assembled here the leadership of all the universities and of a number of the FET colleges. If there was a message I had for you, what would be that message? That message is, don't fall into the storyline of pessimism, the storyline of failure, the storyline that sees only problems in our country. Yes, we have challenges, but we also have much that we can celebrate. Consider this, before 1994, we had an economy that was growing for the 20 years before 1994. It was growing at 1.6% a year. After 1994, in the democratic era, in the same period, 20 years, well, we're a few months short of the 20 years, we've grown at 3.2% annually, almost double the rate of the last two decades of apartheid. Bear in mind that today our GDP is 3.2 trillion rand. It's 83% higher than it was in 1993. Bear in mind that we have 1.6 million young people who are uh, today working compared to when the democracy started. So 1.6 million additional jobs that young people have had. In less than a generation, between 1995 and today, we've more than doubled the number of graduates in the labor market. So there's much we can celebrate whilst we accept and acknowledge the big challenges that we still have ahead of us. The second message that I would have is not only must you combat pessimism, but shape your country. This is above all your country. There's no other country that I would think all of you can go to 
There's no second passport that can come out of the back pocket. Uh, this is your country. And you can shape it through the quality of your work at the university. Both the work you do as students and the work that you do as activists. We need the most brilliant engineers, the best actuaries, the, the, the chartered accountants that the quality of their work transforms our economy. The plumbers for the FET college, uh, uh, the uh, engineers for the university, whether it's a mechanical engineer or a civil engineer that will be building the next generation of power plants. They need to be of the best anywhere. And so it's to try to ensure that the culture of learning allows us to develop that expertise uh, out there, to see it as an investment in your own country, but also in your activism, in how you influence the public debates, to bring the optimism of our nation and to see what is good and to build on what is good and to challenge and take on the difficulties and the problems that we have in our society. So over this uh, period of four years, which is the period that I've spoken about in this administration, a number of positive developments. In the two and a half, three years since the adoption of the new growth path, you can already begin to see positive developments. Taking the 20 years of the democracy, a much better storyline emerges than what we had under apartheid. But while we say all of that, our job every day in government, if you ask what is the radar screen I look at on a day-to-day -day basis, it's how to increase the number of jobs. It's how to bring more manufacturing into South Africa. It's how to strengthen agriculture. It's how to ensure that the minerals that we dig is also transformed in our country. And it's to ensure that the rural poor are in fact empowered, that young people are brought into employment, that women become a big part of the economy and of the leadership of the society. Thank you for the opportunity to share some of these ideas with you, and I'm going to hand you back then to your chairperson.